Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. We've often been told to dress for success, although in the same breath, I think we've also heard the saying that we should put substance over style. So which one is it? Maybe it's both. In the Gilded Age, fashion changed markedly, as it does today. Just as we do today, back then, people made fashion statements with their clothes. Women, in particular, made fashion an expression of politics, much like we do today. You could think of Melania Trump's pussy bow blouse, Hillary Clinton's many pantsuits, or in 2022, at the Met Gala, Camilla Cabello wore an upcycled dress, which was clearly a statement about the environment. In short, fashion matters. And today, I'm joined by Inav Rabinovich Fox, who teaches at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and she specializes in U.S. women's history. Today, we're speaking about her book, Dressed for Freedom, American Feminism and the Politics of Women's Fashion. Welcome to the show, Inav. Thank you. Great to be here. We're here to talk about your super book, Dress for Freedom, which makes the case for fashion and for clothing specifically as a material culture that's charged with political meaning. So I'm just going to open it up to you. What does fashion tell us about feminism that things like, say, the Seneca Falls Convention or the 19th Amendment can't tell us about feminism? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, clothes are uh, clothes matter. Right. Um, we see it all around us. Um, they are very um, like any other, I think, uh, form of historical uh, source. There are a way to uh, get into the past. And I think because we all wear clothes, <laughs> um, right? It's something that is very tangible and it's something, and it's a way to communicate um, ideas in a very kind of like immediate way. Oftentimes, uh, even before we speak to a person, right? Before we hear um, their accent or how they speak, um, we form an opinion about them, um, right? from what we see, um, how they dress and how they look like. Um, so it's something that I think, you know, for many of us, it's not, it's very unconscious way of, of looking at the world. And we all kind of like, oh, we all wear clothes. We all understand clothes. But, but I think like any other, uh, you know, form of communication, it is something that we need to learn and we need to learn to decipher. Um, and, but it's something that 
can be used in ways um, that uh, because we all wear clothes, right, we can all make those statements uh, through appearance. And it, that's something that, um, especially if you work uh, with uh, with women uh, or that, you know, uh, historically did not leave us a lot of written records or with uh, populations that, again, do not leave um, uh, written records or did not have access to power. Um, clothes was a very useful way um, to make those statements and to convey those ideas. So when we think about um, feminism and women's rights in particular, I think when we look at fashion, uh, we can look at a, a lot of other groups and not just the uh, middle-class women who uh, came to Seneca Falls and, you know, worked um, in the suffrage movement, although, you know, um, I have a chapter in the book on the suffragists. Uh, they were very uh, savvy with their clothes. Um, but but it so it does give us kind of like a window to other uh, groups or marginalized groups that not necessarily left uh, records. Uh, but it also, I, I think, and even more important, um, allows us to think about uh, feminism um, and women's rights as an everyday practice and um, not as something that is very kind of like uh, very in the legal form or kind of like very far away from us. Uh, but it is that that you practice and you 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 are being a feminist doesn't mean, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of like writing a lot of books about it, but also kind of like this everyday practice of what does it mean to be feminist? What does it mean to think about those, those issues? Um, and clothes, because we all wear them, um, allows to do that. I think that's a great answer. And I think obviously there's that unspoken, it is literally unspoken, it's material culture. So it's not written or oral. And maybe you could give us a few examples of times when fashion trends or styles facilitated feminist politics. And what I mean by that is like, did fashion bring feminism into the mainstream public discourse? Or are, I mean, or are there other examples that you wanna give? But in your own sort of like research, how does fashion lead to, you know, public questions of equal rights and feminism in particular? Yeah, so, I mean, and that's a great question. And I think that, um, um, right when we often do think about feminism um, and fashion, um, it's like it's like the Roman Empire, right? I think about it all the time. But um, <laughs> for people who who um, who don't don't think about fa fashion and feminism um, um, all day long, uh, I think the most uh, kind of like uh, famous uh, example is the bloomer costume, which was uh, actually a very notoriously uh, uh, outrageous costume at the time. Um, it was worn by uh, Amelia Bloomer. This is how it got the name, but also um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other kind of like very prominent uh, women's rights advocate, and it became very associated with uh, the struggle for suffrage and for women's rights. And what was so outrageous about this dress was that it included pants. And in the mid 19th century, that was a very big challenge to the gender hierarchy and gender norms because women 
uh, were not supposed to wear pants. Pants was very much associated with um, masculinity. Um, and it was a flop. It was, you know, it didn't work. Um, it wasn't successful. Um, it didn't came into the mainstream. And it actually was being, was used as a backlash and as a trope against uh, feminist for a long time, way, way long after uh, they abandoned uh, that outfit. Um, and partly as a way kind of like, oh, you see all those feminists, these are crazy women who are, you know, trying uh, to become men who are trying to kind of like destroy the world and to make it upside down. Uh, right? Because look, they ugly, they wear pants, they, they're masculine. Um, and it became kind of like, right, a, a way to to really attack feminists. Um, and in the, so by the 20th century, feminists were like, we don't want to be associated with the bloomers. This is, does not help us and does not help us to promote the cause. And they were really thinking about, um, right, we need, and especially in the suffrage um, struggle, because um, they need to convince men to give them the vote um, at the end of the day. Um, how do we do it? And part of it was about presenting a fashionable, uh, a beautiful feminine uh, image that will see, you know, we want, right, we want to be equal, but we're not a threat to society. Um, so kind of like by using this uh, fashion and for, for them, you know, luckily for them, uh, fashion industry, because of uh, capitalism, because of technology, because of kind of like the rise of kind of like a ready to wear um, uh, industry that that's how we today buy clothes, but you know, that we go to the store and we buy clothes that we didn't make. Um, but that really becomes kind of like very popular in the end, in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, so uh, the fashion industry is also looking for um, way to make a lot of clothes cheaply. Um, so, um, so in a way, uh, uh, they also kind of like in favor of simplifying silhouettes of making clothes more comfortable because this, you know, let cost less money to make those type of, of clothes um, and they can make more money out of it. Um, so feminists are kind of like uh, by the 20th century are really um, able to show them like, look, we are also with the trans, right? We are dressing with the trans, um, the shirt waist, um, which is kind of like a form of uh, like the feminine version of the male blouse uh, was is really kind of like this is the first bestseller <laughs> um, for women um, and also the first really uh, mass made uh, garment um, uh, for women. Um, and that kind of like shows very kind of like it's both professional it both kind of like very neat looking, but on the other hand, it's mobile, it's modern, um, it's kind of like for on the go woman that really does kind of like aligns with the argument that feminists make of, yes, we do need to be able to move and to breathe and to kind of like go out and about uh, for work, for education. Um, so that really uh, kind of like fits into uh, this idea of uh, feminist arguments. And later on, I think, you know, um, 
in the 1920s and kind of like this idea of the flapper uh, with the short skirt with kind of like this idea of liberation um, that was really kind of like and was very interpreted this way by the public of like, see, this is what happened when women get the vote and women are being freed. Um, and they're freed not only in the um, political realm in the terms that now they, they can vote with all the caveats, right? Uh, that, that, that the 19th century, uh, the 19th amendment did or did not do, but, um, but, but the flapper with her short skirt, with her, you know, very free lifestyle of smoking and dancing and kind of like what we think of as the roaring 20s, um, really symbolize this idea of uh, a freedom of liberation that is not just about political rights, but it's also about freeing your own bodies, about, you know, ability to go and to move um, in ways that was really for the first time uh, in history, people were like, oh, women have two legs and they can actually use them, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, so really to think about, even to think about this and, and even, uh, you know, it's small things, but, um, uh, and, and you know, you, you don't have hair on your head, so you might not <laughs> be so aware of it, but hair um, weighs a lot, clothes weighs a lot. And what the 1920s did was really to make clothes, um, to make the, the weight of clothes and hair just irrelevant and it really I mean you know and everybody wants to you know wake up next morning without 10 pounds on their body but that was the feeling for many women um so it's a very tangible it's not like you know an abstract idea of freedom and it that change um it wasn't overnight but you know sometimes it was very quick so for a woman who was 15 in 1905 you know, by the time she's, she's, you know, 35 in 1925, she would have lost almost 10 pounds from just hair and clothes, because she would have cut her hair. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's three, four pounds, just just the hair, and it's not on your head all the time. I mean, so just this tangible feeling of freedom um and kind of like lightweightness um is something that I think you know and, and many women were really kind of like feeling it um in a very literally sense um so I think we shouldn't underestimate how much that change was uh because you know yes voting is great but kind of like be able to go on a weekend and pack clothes that goes into a small suitcase um, instead of, you know, a trunk, that's a lot, that makes a lot of difference uh, for the everyday life of, of, of women. What I would give for three pounds of extra hair on my head, I know. And I'll have you know, I'll have you know, back in the day, my hair was longer than yours, believe it or not. So yes, I might be free, but I feel diminished <laughs> now. I need to enhance my appearance with ridiculous costumes now. I think, but anyway, no, you're you're you're. That's a wonderful explanation. Wonderful examples. I want to dive into some of them, particularly the shirt waist and the flapper, in a little bit more depth. But I really love that you pointed out there that fashion is not just about the clothes too. It's 
it's much more than that. It's not even just the accessories. It's the it's the the literal feeling of of liberation here. So, but let's go back to the shirtwaist. And I was wondering if you could do two things with the shirtwaist because you mentioned it there. It plays a really big role in your book. It's the out. It's the it's the the first chapter. It's probably the biggest chapter. It's really a wonderful look at at a style that transformed. Uh, I think life for women over over a decade. Can you describe what the shirtwaist is? Because you you mentioned it there briefly. And tell us how the fashion came into being and what did it do for things like race? Because you talk about how it transcended racial kind of styles. And can you tell us a little bit more about what it does for class? Because you talk about how the shirtwaist kind of conforms to some norms, but then breaks out of others as well. And race and class seem to be two that it it transcends and, and, and yet conforms to in certain ways as well. Yeah, so I mean, the shirtwaist was um, really the first um, uh, mass-made uh, garment for women. Um, uh, women's bodies are very hard to standardize um, or harder than males' bodies. Um, so it really, I mean, the industry really took uh, a while until uh, it picked up on kind of like how to standardize uh, clothes for women. Um, the Civil War was a great catalyst for men uh, clothing because uh, the military needed uniform, right? Um, so with um, so kind of like mass uh, production uh, for men for men clothes kind of like started to pick up after um, the Civil War, uh, but it was really only in the late 19th century that kind of like the industry figured out how to do it for women, um, and the shirtwaist was this. Uh, was the solution, and partly uh, because it it was easier to standardize, um, unlike other forms of garment, it it didn't have to fit into the body um, really nicely. It could be kind of like quite loose. Um, you had still had your corset um, uh, beneath it, but but it didn't have to fit to kind of like your your own measurement. So it could have become. Uh, more standardized, um, which, uh, you know, gave a good reason for the industry to do it. Uh, but it also could be made in various grades. Um, so, um, you know, if you were a, a rich person, um, you would probably um, let your personal dressmaker uh, so your 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 shirtwaist, if you were kind of like middle class, you might have gone to a very luxurious department store um, and bought it. And if you were a working class uh, woman who 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 probably would have uh, sewed um, and made those those shirtwaist uh, herself, um, she could not afford uh, to buy uh, the, the necessarily uh, the shirts that she was making. Uh, but she could have bought them in maybe uh, the basement, the sale basement of a department store or in a push cart um, um, on, uh, on the street. Or even, you know, if she was very talented, and many of them were, um, she could have steal some cloth from, <laughs> from the factory and, um, and sew it herself. But most, uh, for most working class women, um, 
it was the act of buying, right? Instead, like, I don't want to waste, you know, even though I can do it, this was their job. So they didn't want to do this on their spare time, right? They wanted to be able to buy those clothes because the act of buying was actually kind of like for them a way to be here. We are like middle-class women. We can uh, buy, uh, we can also buy our clothes, right? This is kind of like a status symbol. Um, but was great about the shirtwaist that it had this democratic um, aspiration that even if the quality of the shirtwaist really varied, um, they looked the same. And I think like, you know, for today's listeners, um, we need, we like a way to think about it is through, um, you know, fast fashion of H&M and Zara, right? They're taking what we see on the runway of the, the Chanel and they're kind of like making a very cheap version of the same style. And that's what happened basically with the shirtwaist. So, you know, if you're a very, um, if you're kind of like a fashion scholar, you can tell the difference between, <laughs> between a Chanel suit and an H&M version of it. Uh, but for most people, right, those are just look the same, right? They don't look at the seams. They don't look at the, they don't feel the, you know, the quality of the fabric that is really different from uh, grade to grade, but they look the same. So a working class woman who lives for $6 a week, right, can look like the middle class or even the, the very rich woman um, who live um, on Park Avenue, um, and they kind of like be look the same. Um, and that that has a lot of meaning in terms of like the democratization of fashion. And you can see it um, and, and, and garment workers, um, especially because they're kind of like um, also adjacent in, in very kind of like tangible way to the industry, they follow fashion because they are making those fashions, you know, before they hit the store. So they know kind of like, their their finger is very much on kind of like what's going to be trendy and what's not going to be trendy. So they 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 know um, and they find their own solution of how to to keep up with that fashion. Um, but for them, <clears throat> wearing those shirtwaists, it's not just a professional identity that we look respectable, we look professional, but we look like our middle class sisters. We are look we can. You know, we all look American. A lot of those garment workers are immigrants, uh, right? So that's another kind of like way for them. And, and the shirtwaist become very much associated with this idea of this new woman, this new American woman. Um, it, the shirtwaist is not so um, kind of like popular in Europe. Um, it's very much associated with the American industry. Um, so for those immigrant women, that's another way to show, look, we are um, we are American citizens, right? That's and and again, for someone who might not be uh, might not know Eng English so well or kind of like doesn't speak uh, great English or, you know, have, um different kind of foods that she's eating right at home or or, or have you know um maybe uh she's jewish so she has different customs i mean but if she's wearing a shirtwaist she looks like any other american um and that's kind of like often the first thing that immigrants do when they come to the country they shed their their clothes from the old world 
and they buy a shirt waist because that's kind of like show that they are Americans. Um, and you can see later on when, when garment uh, workers are starting um, uh, to get more militant and to strike, um, when they standing um, uh, in the big strike of 1909, um, and, and, and there are uh, uh, rich elite women who are standing on the picket line with them in solidarity and they're getting arrested together, right? Because I mean, you know, Mrs. Morgan, the the daughter uh, of of J.P. Morgan, is standing with with those strikers, and she gets arrested. And you kind of like, wh who is the policeman who you know <laughs> who dared to to arrest um, the daughter of J.P. Morgan? But you know, both of them look the same, so you can tell, right? Um, uh, because both of them wore shirtwaist. I mean, and of course, you know, Mrs. Morgan shirtwaist were far better um, in quality, uh, but this, they looked the same. And that, that allowed for a lot of kind of like this democratization, both over class, across class, but also across race. I mean, because Black women also kind of like joining this, right? Um, they're saying, look, this is kind of like an image that we can also tap into. And again, because it was so associated with idea of Americanism, with a collegiate culture, with kind of like um, this uh, idea of respectability uh, for black women, it is another kind of like easy segue to kind of like, look, we look like those white women. And if we look like those white women, we also deserve the same rights and privileges as white women um, because we look like them, right? And the shirtwaist, because it was so prevalent and because it was kind of like this very professional, respectable looking uh, type of garment, allow them to kind of like make those claims for fashionability, for respectability that they might not be able to do in any other ways because you know some of them were poor some of them were um not as uh wealthy most of them could not um go into the department stores and try on the clothes because this is right uh there's segregation there's discrimination against um um, um black people but on the other hand, but the shirtwaist, again, uh, because it doesn't have to be fitted into a body, can be bought um, uh, in, you know, what we call today online, right? Um, and, and, and this is also a period where, where we see the rise of those trade catalogs like Sears, um, Montgomery Ward, um, um, that really becomes kind of like the way that people buy clothes. They buy clothes through the mail and you don't need to try it on. Um, and Sears was very kind of like progressive um, in a way that did allow uh, Black people to participate in this consumer culture um, in a way that was less discriminatory, right? Because um, you just send your money and you got your shirt waist um, in the mail. Um, and, and again, you were part of this fashion conversation, um, even if you were not, you know, the most kind of like obvious person to participate in that conversation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the, it's so powerful. And, and, you know, this is like, this is why I love your book too. And the, the other half of the shirtwaist story is the bicycle skirt. And I wanted to talk about that because we're living in an age where I don't know if we realize that we're living through this sometimes, but athletic wear, and I'm actually wearing athletic wear right now as we speak, but especially for women, athletic wear has not, it's not a statement anymore. It's the norm. Like you show up, students show up to your class in athletic wear. You know, it's not just for yoga or for working out. It's now every day. And the, the bicycle skirt is a little bit of that story too. How does that match up with the shirt waist and the, this like appeal to the new woman, as you call it? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's interesting and I'm, I'm actually working on, on, on a piece about uh, sportswear, um, but it, it, I mean, the category of kind of like sportswear or activewear or leisure wear um, that today is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? And we do wear it as an everyday wear. I mean, that category did not exist well, well into the 20th century for women's wear, women had to figure it out, right, what to do, because um, women were not supposed to be engaged in physical activities. Uh, women were not supposed to engage in sports. Uh, but, but what happened with the bicycle that was a craze in the, you know, uh, late 19th century, and it was kind of like this great invention and everybody were so excited about it and what was good about it it was um it was kind of like this new sport right it wasn't it didn't have like a long tradition of excluding women 
Um, so women really picked up on the bicycle very quickly. Um, you know, uh, there are those uh, 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 old bicycles when there's like this big um, uh, wheel and then the small wheel. And that's actually very dangerous and very complicated. Uh, you know, we see it now only in the circus because it's actually very hard to ride on. Uh, but by the late 19th century, uh, the 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 kind of like uh, the two wheel uh, invention comes the, the bicycle as we know it today, um, and women were like, oh, this is great! Like this is a great way to to exercise. But unlike other sports that are becoming kind of like popular, especially in the women's colleges, um, bicycling was kind of like a very public activity. It wasn't just sport. People just, you know, took a ride in the park. Uh, it was a courting activity. Uh, so women couldn't just wear what they wanted. They needed, you know, if you're going out with someone, you, you need to dress up, right? Um, so they had to find solutions that uh, were a comfortable, but also kind of like did not push too much against um, uh, gender norms because they still had to maintain kind of like this feminine appearance, even if they're wearing, you know, not sweatpants, but, um, you know, I don't, I mean, yeah, my students are the same there. <laughs> so <laughs> with sweatpants, I don't know if they trying to impress uh, the other sex, but, um, uh, but 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 cycling fashion was definitely that. And so even though bloomer was definitely an option and was probably the preferable option for riding a bike, it wasn't as because of all its complicated history, uh, women could not wear bloomers when they um, were uh when they rode bicycles so they kind of like came up with um with a compromise that was kind of like a short skirt and when i say short it kind of like mid-calf um so you know for us in the 21st century terms of short is very different uh, but it was short um for these women i mean showing of legs were was considered to be very uh radical at the time and when women are starting to, uh, you know, ride those bicycles, um, and again, you know, there were many of them, uh, the public got used to seeing all these women in short skirts. It's not this not normal thing anymore. And then women were like, okay, this works on the wheel. It can also works off the wheel, off the wheel, right? Um, and 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 again, when women are starting to 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 get education, to, to, you know, to be more in the public sphere. Um, they need to walk around in city streets and city streets were far more dirtier um, than they used to be. Um, the short skirt was a great solution because it didn't brought all the dirt and, you know, diseases um, that the long skirts brought with them. Um, and it was, again, for women, a very tangible experience. Oh, my God, like for first time in my life, I'm not sick at winter because my clothes are not wet and dirty. Right. Um, and so for especially um, and, and a bunch of kind of like career women in New York and later it spread throughout the country saying, look, we need those, you know, rainy day 
clothes. Um, and they figure out, well, if it works on rainy days, it will work, you know, on sunny days too. Like, why not wearing it all the time? Um, so, so this idea of mobility, of the idea that that clothes need to be functional, right? Or they're not just beautiful, um, or they we we don't need just to be you know look at good at, but actually clothes need to serve a function. Uh, really becomes popular um, through these um, athletics, through sports, um, in a way that everyday wear um, become kind of like similar to uh, sports wear. But again, it you still have to maintain this idea of femininity, of respectability. Um, you know, I think a lot of women, even the most radical ones, would probably be kind of like, look at today's uh, students and would be kind of like, oh my God, why are you wearing your pajamas to? <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure they would. Um, I think I do that sometimes too, and I'm only a, maybe a generation removed, but um, okay, well, you, 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 there's so much I wanna pick up on there, but I'm gonna save that for when we talk about New York and Bohemian uh, styles, because I think there's some questions there about sectionalism and style in different places and where do the, the styles come from. But before I do that, I want to just look at the suffragette movement um, or the suffrage movement, um, which that really gained traction in popular imagination, your book points out, when they took up performance and pomp and, you know, and fashion was a, a part of that. So tell us what the suffrage style was, what the clothes looked like for, for both African-American and white uh, suffragists. I mean, you talk about the style called the Oriental style. So maybe you can tell listeners what that was. Yeah, um, so, uh, right. So in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, I mean, although I have to admit, I mean, the fascination with the Orient or with Orientalism or the Far East, um, has gone, you know, for for many years, um, and it has, as in fashion, right? We have trends. Um, so there was like a trend in the nineteenth um, uh, century, which actually the bloomer is part of it because it is Turkish trousers, um, technically, um, that kind of like uh, imitate the harem pants. Um, and but by um, the early 20th century, um, there is this, again, uh, fascination uh, with the Orient, with mainly with Japan um, and um, kind of like more that uh, far Eastern cultures, uh, partly because Japan is by, you know, uh, the early 20th century does rise as this powerful military force, a modern empire. Um, after years of seclusion, Japan is kind of like becoming one of the kind of like uh, uh, global powers. So there is this fascination uh, with with that Japanese culture. Um, but it was really, I mean, like good, you know, uh, white imperialistic uh, people, uh, the adoptions from the Orient is very kind of like close and not historically or um, necessarily accurate. There's also still very much a fascination with Turkey and, and kind of like the Middle East. So, you know, you can find in one outfit all kind of inspirations that that would deem Oriental, but they're not necessarily from the same 
geographical space or geographical time. Um, uh, but there is this fascination uh, with the Orient in a way that, you know, Edward Said also talked about that, that this is kind of like this very, uh, it's sexualized, it's very exciting, um, it's very feminine too, uh, right? Unlike the Western rationalism, rational kind of like seriousness that very much uh, is uh, associated with masculinity, the Orient is feminine, the Orient is emotional. Um, but for um, for women and for feminists, the Orient is also a place of freedom in some sense that they can experiment, um, and especially white middle-class women can afford to experiment with kind of like all kind of un- uh, uh, conventional clothes and styles, and you know, worst thing worse, they will be be Oriental, right? This is like the Oriental style. They're not going to be censored as you know, this is not respectable, or you. Um, so they 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 have kind of like this allow a freedom, and and the style that comes, especially the kimono styles, are more comfortable, are more loose. Um, they don't include corsets. Um, if you look at the Middle East, uh, also you have the pants, the harem pants that becomes kind of like very uh, fashionable. Um, so kind of like feminists are really kind of like uh, using this Oriental uh, a style and the fascination with the Oriental style to kind of like experiment with their own clothes and to find their own uh, way of dressing in a way that will fit their own ideas of, you know, bodily freedom and freedom of movement um, that the kimono does allow them to, to do. Um, so uh, for them, it was a way to kind of like um, take out something that was kind of like was supposed to be very intimate, uh, very kind of like private uh, form of wear and say, no, this is, a, you know, this is a public outfit. Um, but because it was in fashion, people are not looking at them as like, oh, these are crazy feminists, but they're like, oh, these are very fashionable women. Maybe we should list, listen to what they say. Um, and, and the suffrage movement in, in particular was very good at understanding, uh, you know, political, modern political campaigning. Um, I think, you know, Today, we're like, oh, of course, you know, politicians need to craft an image and need to kind of like play with visuals. Um, and a lot of this modern campaigning was actually invented and or, you know, uh, popularized by suffragists. Um, and they were really good in utilizing this modern technology of campaigning to push for their um, you know, for their goal, and they succeeded, you know, the 19th Amendment did pass in the end, um, and they were very savvy about it, um, so they used, um, uh, they, they, they knew how to use the press, um, they knew, again, how to build an image uh, for who is a suffragist, right, um, most of it was actually not in terms of styles so much um, as in just colors, um, so the use of colors are very, uh, are very kind of like interesting in the suffrage movement because they're very intentionally using colors, right? Um, 
we now know uh, suffrage white. Um, and that's something that, you know, we see it even in today's politicians who are using kind of like that association with the suffrage movement. But the suffrage movement really, um, so the three suffrage color, purple, yellow, and white are really becoming kind of like part of their campaign. Um, and the way to do it, right, is to dress in those colors. Um, and white dresses are just cheaper, right, to, to have. And also they work really well in the black and white photographs that needs to be printed um, in the press, right? So that, that, that um, contrast of color between black and white really pictures well. Um, and suffragists are really kind of like attuned to those things. Um, so, so white dresses, even though, again, they were using a more sophisticated color palette, actually, um, but it kind of like gets lost in the black and white evidence. Um, and the white does make a very powerful impression. But again, and again, because it's something that everybody can wear, um, it does allow for kind of like a more broader solidarity or a more unifying image, even though we know there's a lot of tension between black suffragists and white suffragists, but when they march together, all look the same, that's a powerful image. Um, and that, you know, it, it doesn't override those tensions, but at least it can allow to present um, a more unified image or for black women, especially, um, it allows them to, to say, again, we look the same. We are with you in this because, you know, we are all together um, looking the same. So that was a very powerful um, thing for, for, again, black women to, to, to claim those things that, that, that white suffragists already are claiming. And the white was especially um, important because white was associated with morality, with purity, um, which were qualities that, you know, black women were denied in the public sphere. Um, so for them to march in white dresses was also to claim those those rights. Um, so this is, I think, you know, why white became so powerful. Um, but, you know, and we don't have color images, unfortunately, but there were a lot of, you know, yellows and purples too. <laughs> um, it, it all, but it all goes to this point that these are very conscious decisions as well, that we're not just stumbling through our day to day, putting on whatever, just because right. it's whatever, whatever's around, we're making these conscious decisions. And and one of the things that I, I think about when I, I thought about when I was reading this was about um, fashion centers and where are these ideas coming from? And you mentioned New York. And nowadays we would say like New York, Paris, Milan and Tokyo. Right. I mean, it would be and maybe you could add other places to that, too. But um, but there are sort of fashion centers and and there are stylistic differences, presumably, too. And maybe if I could just like restrict your answer to just the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, because I know your book goes far beyond it. But. I mean, in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, what are those centers? I presume it's New York, but maybe there's others as well that I didn't, uh, that I that just didn't spring to mind. It it's actually is Paris. Um, you know, the center is always, um, and for a long, long time, uh, is Paris. Um, even though that you're right, by the time, you know, by the Gilded Age, there's enough money in New York. Um, and New York does become 
uh, um, it becomes a manufacturing center for sure. Um, the shirt waist is, you know, the industry at the time is in New York, um, the Lower East Side, um, in particular, um, in, in, in the, uh, you know, when the, as the 20th century will progress, it will move to the South and then to the global South. Uh, but in the, you know, 19th century, uh, early 20th century, the garment industry center is still New York. Um, Chicago is another very big uh, center, again, because it's a center of money, but also a center of immigrants and industry. Um, Cleveland, where I am uh, from, is also um, have a lot of uh, centers. Uh, I mean, but again, but these are not necessarily fashion centers. Um, there are manufacturing centers, right, uh, where industry happens. Um, styles um, are still coming very much from Paris. Um, uh, it will only be in the later um, and the mid 20th uh, century where styles will really become, you know, when when New York would be kind of also an originator of styles um, and not just uh, of clothes. Right. So, I mean, and by the Gilded Age, I mean, the 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 very rich, the Vanderbilts, you know, the Astors of the world, they will get their fashions um, and their dresses from Paris, from the Paris courtiers. And that's um, that's interesting because, again, dressed is capital. I mean, we are now wearing fast fashion and we it's hard to think about clothes as like very expensive. Uh, but but clothes were very expensive and there were a form of capital and they were very, um, you know, uh, when there was a tariff war between U.S. and France, a lot of angry women in New York are calling their husbands and they were like, what the hell is happening? We need our worth dress and I don't want to pay an extra $600 for it. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, so so women are very much involved in kind of like this very serious conversation about capitalism through their engagement with fashion. So the very elite does still buy, goes to Paris, you know, two, three times a year, me being measured, going and being and have their dress sewn, sewn to a person. Right. You it, it is worth maybe or other um uh, uh French designers, but they are being but they are dressed for a, a certain person. Um the kind of like the 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 middle class or kind of like right people who are less um uh financially uh wealthy um they will probably get their um clothes either imported from uh, Paris or being sewn in uh, America, but on uh, based on uh, a, a French design. So what happened is that, you know, a, a buyer from a department store will go to a fashion show in Paris, will see, okay, this is the trends of the season. Um, and then he will buy um, or she will buy uh, a few dresses that are kind of like French originals, right? And then the department store will sell those as French originals. Um, but 
they will also go to a dressmaker in Brooklyn and say, you see this dress? I want this dress in like the $40 mark, in the $150 mark, in the $20 mark. So we will have the same dress in a different pr prices that would probably be made in the United States, but the fashion would come from uh, Paris. Um, so yeah, and 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 for kind of like you know other like places like Chicago, San Francisco, St. Louis, um, these women or the elites in those places will maybe I mean some of them will go to Paris as well, but some of them will go to New York, right, and will buy those Paris fashions. So so it is kind of like this trickling down of styles. Uh, but but very much until the Second World War, uh, Paris will be uh, the capital. Yeah, and I presume it still thinks of itself in that way too. Although your your one of your later chapters in the 1940s and 50s talks about female designers in the United States as well, and that's a really uh, really great story of empowerment through that industry. Um, I'm not going to ask about that, although I would encourage readers to go pick up the book and get to those chapters about the 1920s and the flapper, which you mentioned about the the women that are working in the industry, uh, the design industry. But I wanted to ask you about the research, because I imagine that that must have been a lot of fun, if not really frustrating at times, because you've got original sources like the the designs and the outfits, and that must have been great to like find and explore. But then you have to get to what you're talking about in some of these answers that you're giving me about like the motives for style and the impression that these styles would have made on other people. And that seems rather difficult to find at times. Am I right? Yes. Um, unfortunately, um, most of us do not write a manifesto, right? Why when they get dressed up, you know, in the morning, right? Um, so it was really hard to find those smoking guns of like, oh, today I wore this dress because I wanted to show my support for whatever. Um, so I didn't have, the, I have like one or two of those, uh, but I don't really have, because again, most of us are not doing it, right? Um, so it was uh, hard sometimes to get into um kind of like okay but why are you really wearing those things um but uh unfortunately you know some of the women <laughs> did write about it I was actually quite surprised um you know when I started this research I was also kind of like how do I get into it so um and and it took a while but kind of like um and I and I I don't remember which one, but I remember writing, reading a, an article that also said that the that kind of like how she came, how this author came to the subject, that um, she kind of like put aside every time that someone talked about fashion because like this was not the thing that she's working on. And after a while, she was like, "Oh my God, I have a pile." Um, so maybe I should do something with that. And it was really something that for me was helpful. I was like, okay, let me just, you know, try to build those piles. So it's a line here and it's a line there. But in the end, I had a pile that I could work with, um, which was, you know, uh, which meant reading a lot of uh, fashion magazines, which, you know, I think for a lot of people might sound like fun. But for me, at one point I was like, yeah, this is not, I think I, 
<laughs> everything that people like do away from their research like for me it was research and now I kind of like now it's work like I don't for me it's not like this escapist thing that you do after oh, I totally get it I absolutely get it <laughs> um, it's like what do you do I read Vogue all day but it's like really work it's really hard um at one point um so it was about kind of like combing um uh a lot of women's magazines um and which was actually for me it was surprising to see how much um not just women's magazines but mag you know newspapers like the New York Times like uh the nation um very like serious right uh publication really talk had a lot of talk about fashion um in very political interesting ways um so I was kind of like actually surprised to find uh so much of kind of like oh they actually do talk a lot about this this is not a frivolous thing that they don't think about um, which kind of like also led me to see why it was intentional um, in many ways. And it's not just like, oh, let's just pick up the dress in the closet and go out to the street. Um, um, but another thing, and that was also interesting to compare what was in the papers um, to actual garments. Um, because when you touch something um, and when you see it, um, you really got the sense of like, oh my God, this is heavy. Uh, this is does not look so comfortable. Um, or, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about women's waists and corsets. Uh, but when you see a dress, you're kind of like, oh, this is actually not that narrow of a waist. Like if people were also shorter, you know, um, in the 19th century. So it's kind of proportional. It's not as, um, you know, uh, narrow or or extreme as sometimes what you read in, in kind of like uh, anti-corset literature. Um, so it does give you um, a, a good uh, sense of kind of like the difference between uh, you know, and it is the age before um, photography really became kind of like prevalent in magazines. So there's a lot of illustrations um, and illustrations are not necessarily comparable to uh, real life. Um, not that photography is, but um, but that uh, but that was very uh, helped me also to get a sense of kind of like what what comfort really means. And for me, like the the most um, uh, interesting example was when I was at Smith College and I got to see their um, costume collection and they had a swimming suit uh, from the 20s, which was kind of like this very radical um, uh, type of design like because it showed the, the legs and showed the arms. And, um, and when I looked at it, it was made out of wool. And I was like, I would have never, like, you pay me, I don't win. Like, this is the most, I can't believe people wore it and even celebrate us as, like, freedom. Like, I don't want to, like, no, just no. And, and, and it's something that, you know, a picture would never have given that me that um because all those women right look so happy and I was like all all I could think about was like this is like 
a wool, a wet wool on your body. Like how it's like torture. It'd be scratching you yeah, as you're swimming. I know. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah I, I love that you do you do have to kind of as, as much as possible get your hands on, you know, the the objects of the past in order to to get closer to it. I I completely agree. Your the book, the book takes us right up to the recent past, um, the 1980s and and later waves of feminist activity, but I wonder if we could take the story to the 2010s and 2020s, where we are today. And for me, I couldn't help but think about Melania Trump, actually, and, and her decision to wear the pussy bow uh, blouse uh, after that audio was released of her husband then running for president, where he talks about sexually assaulting women. Uh, but and the, the press had said that her decision to wear the blouse was an act of defiance. Uh, we, we might never know, of course, whether that's true or not, but it does seem evocative about, in a way, how your book positions material culture in the public debates over equality and power. And I was wondering if you had any other recent examples of fashion and feminism that might offer us some similar takes, like the Melania Trump one. Sure. I mean, I would be hesitate, hesitant to call Melania Trump feminist, but... <laughs> Well, like I said, we'll never know with that. We'll never know. Love. I mean, yeah. I, I actually think she she's far less defiant that the, the media is making her to be. Um, but um, I think, you know, and, and it's interesting in the recent, um, uh, uh, you know, we are in the midst of a campaign, um, of an election campaign. Um, and I was like thinking, actually, yes, I mean, there was a, uh, a GOP primaries debate yesterday. Um, so, and I've been thinking a lot about Nikki Haley um, in the last couple of uh, months. Um, I think actually that Nikki Haley is not, uh, has not found her style yet. She's, she's experimenting uh, with all kinds of looks. Um, none of them actually works well for her, I think. And, and, and she has a very difficult thread uh, to kind of, to 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 kind of like to thread because she needs to look powerful and and she also she's a woman of color in a Republican party, uh, so she's trying to find her way. I think it's a problem for her that we're in January and she doesn't have an image yet. Um, but but she does uh, talk about uh, her stilettos, right? When Vivica, right. let me yes. ask her, yeah, right, right. Um, but she still she didn't she she can I don't know capitalize or harness those. She didn't she she's still kind of like I think very much afraid to talk about her appearance. I mean I think like if we compare it to Hillary Clinton, um, especially in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton really kind of like. Uh, owned the pantsuit, made her her own, and really kind of like said, yes, this is my fashion, and really kind of like embraced um, kind of like the fashion discourse um, as part of kind of like her woman card uh, that she was far more comfortable in using um, in 2016 compared to 2008. Um, so, so Clinton was far kind of like better in using uh, fashion to to make make a statement. I think you know the younger generation of Congresswomen, um, uh, um, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, um, and um, uh, even uh, Elon Omar, right? They have now, um, not to mention um, cinema, 
Oh, Kirsten Cinema. Like, yeah, from Kirsten Cinema. Right. Yeah, that they they are really understand. You know, you can argue with their politics, but they really understand the power of imagery and the power of clothes in making those image images. Um, and they're really using it in very, very clever ways, I feel, um, in really understanding that, yeah, that sometimes, again, you make, you form your opinion way before these women are starting to make their speeches. Um, and their uh, uh, clothes can say a lot of things. Um, so they're very clever about using this. I mean, and interestingly, what I find is really how much uh, the suffrage white uh, that was kind of like, you know, we started to see it around the centennial, but now it kind of like became the official uniform of women in politics. I mean, they all wear white and become like, you cannot sworn into office <laughs> not wearing white. Um, and I think that also says a lot about, you know, the suffrage movement and how much of that legacy is still with us. Um, but also how today's politicians and, you know, on the spot, not just women, um, men use it too. Um, Justin Jones from Tennessee, <clears throat> who was one of the uh, three Congress uh, Congress uh, state congressmen who, who got expelled, um, he wore also a white suit. Um, to the day of his hearing, right? Um, in a very intentional way, referencing the suffrage movement. Um, so it's really interesting how much of that kind of like history is really part of our current fashion discourse, um, especially in politics, that I find um, really interesting and fascinating and how much of it became kind of like uh, uh, the way to to make a statement to make a, a protest and 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 you know during uh, the state of the union addresses when, uh, during the trump administration when all congress uh, democratic congresswomen appeared in white um that was a very powerful statement um and they did reference um you know now we're living in a twitter age so um i do get a lot of twits about women's clothing <laughs> far more than the original uh documents uh but but really thinking about that and how um clothes is important to to what you say and i think you know part of nikki's haley struggle um, is because she couldn't find a good, like she 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 hasn't found yet like a good image that she can really tap on and kind of like sell because we don't like I don't know how she's gonna what she's gonna wear. I suppose the counterpart the counterpart to that is maybe uh, Sarah Palin who quickly found an image is you know this sort of um, hyper feminine uh, rustic you know backwoods person you know like yeah. you know. I, I see what you mean. Nikki Haley hasn't adopted it, but you could tell that she wants to. I mean, she talks about it, you know, when she when she came back to Vivek Ramaswamy and said, you know, they're actually they're they're not as big as you might think, you know. And yeah, but she's so you can tell she's trying to. What about the Met Gala is another political platform that seems to be, I suppose the Met Gala has always been a thing, but it seems in the last few years the fashion has become even more politicized, especially around. Uh, women's rights, trans rights, uh, uh, gay and lesbian rights. 
Yes, I think, I mean, part of it was, um, I think uh, the, the math came with uh, relatively political exhibitions, which, you know, is not common for the math, but um, they did it. They had the American uh, style exhibition and um, uh, it was kind of like a double exhibition. Um, so that I think got uh, more, more political attention, uh, right? But I think what in the Mad Gala, you can really see how fashion can be, you know, just fashion. It's not just, you know, beautiful clothes, right? And even if you make a statement on Chanel, right, um, the, the way they did in the Karl Lagerfeld show, I mean, that became kind of like this big, um, a uh, big scandal, not because of, of the show exactly, but because of Kim Kardashian wearing uh, Marilyn Monroe, which is very political dress, right? Um, uh, the, the happy birthday, uh, the new uh, dress, um, which has a lot of issues with, you know, Kim Kardashian wearing that dress, but the dress itself has very political meaning. So what does it mean when Kim Kardashian wears Marilyn Monroe dress, right? Um, so even if it's not political in terms of partisan politics necessarily, I mean, I think that the Met Gala, because of the attention it got, does allow people to make those statements um, to their clothes in ways that, again, this is a platform that uh, maybe is, is certainly available only to the few and the rich, uh, but um, they can kind of like harness it to make statements that are not necessarily uh, connected um, to uh, to the exhibition, uh, you know, itself or to the mat itself, but to kind of like a larger um, uh, issues. I mean, you know, uh, Ocasio-Cortez came with a rich dress. Um, uh, Representative uh, Maloney came with kind of like uh, the Equal Rights Amendment dress that was very, um, but but again, I think, you know, thinking about bodies, thinking about um, trans rights, about gay rights, and you see a lot of camp, you see a lot of representation of uh, those issues um, in a kind of like non-political way, um, which is the Mad Gala, which allowed to put politics into it. Um, in interesting ways. It's a it's a great combination, I think. And it really, for for me, this is a great book to teach with because it's one that students can easily relate to because they, as you rightly pointed out, unless we're doing something wrong, everyone's wearing clothes. Um, so it it's a wonderful book, Ina. Thanks so much for thank doing you. the show and talking about fashion and politics. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 